so we can go live now. And we are live from California and Italy simultaneously. Welcome everybody to Data on Kubernetes Community live stream number 141. I don't know how to say it in Italian, but I will learn that very quickly from our guests. Before we get started, as usual, thank you so much for joining us. Super stoked about what we're going to be doing today. Just actually wrapped up a Twitter spaces talking about the whole expansion of the data on Kubernetes landscape, the different technologies that we're seeing. After all, we've been around for two years now, celebrating our second birthday. It's really good to see the growth of the community. As you can see, 141 live streams in less than two years, working on our DOK day, next one coming up in October. Going to drop the link here, and I hope today's speakers will also submit a CFP. Um, we're getting CFPs already for DOK Day in Detroit, which will be hybrid. Um, so we'll have about 150, 200 people with us in person in Detroit, and then the rest of our audience online. And please get those CFPs in there. Like I said, we started out this community two years ago with a database and storage focus. Since then, we've seen other use cases, different kind of workloads making their way in. One of the most exciting spaces, which is why we dedicated extra time to this today earlier, is this aspect of data science, ML, AI, all these different workloads that are making their way in. So today I'm joined by two wonderful individuals that are in the amazing country of Italy on the other side of the world, nine hours ahead, living in the future. Dario and Jacobo, welcome. Uh, Dario, since we got your screen on, uh, your camera on, Jacobo will explain why he's a little bit camera shy today later. But Dario, who are you and how'd you get into this space in the first place? And thanks all because a really nice introduction. So my name is Dario. I am from Italy, from the north. And you know, I'm a software developer because I love to write code, especially on Kubernetes because I've been a site reliability engineer. So I started writing operators, controllers, custom controllers, and so on, so on and so forth. So I'm here with Jacopo because there is a nice story because Jacopo is also the son of, my, of one of my teachers in high school and we are doing the same job, although he's working in university and said I'm working in the private sector. But I'm not doing data, but I'm writing operators for Kubernetes and I'm here uh, presenting Capsule, that is the multi-tenant operator for Kubernetes developed by Classics and by the open source. So really happy to be here. Good stuff. And interesting backstory. Nice to see those sort of connections coming through. We don't need to get too much into regional differences, but we do have some other community members that are in Italy. Um, most prominently, shout out to Gabriele Bartolini, who's in Prato. Is there a rivalry at all between Turin and Prato? Or well, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, it's different regions. So in Prato, well, in Tuscany, everybody hates pizza. So luckily is not living in pizza. So okay. that's good. <laughs> okay. So those are things that unify you. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, everybody. Yeah. But this is what's cool. And I really encourage folks, whether it's in our community or any other community, be in these space where you have people from all over the world, really take advantage of that and try to learn about other cultures. There's tons of stuff that you can learn there. So anyway, shout out to all the folks in Italy. Jacobo, you are a little bit camera shy today. Um, you can explain that if you want, but tell us about your background. You're sort of on the academic side. How'd you get into this world? What, what kind of motivates you to be here today? Hello, thank you for the introduction. So as you said, I work in, uh, in uh, university. I'm postdoctoral researcher. I always uh, did research on uh, high performance computing and cloud computing and also on workflows, which uh, I see as a way to make them work together, but at the same time, keeping them separated, doing uh, each one what it can do better. And uh, uh, unfortunately today, I will not show my face because I just got the coronavirus. So I ensure that you don't want to see my face today. 
<laughs> it's not a, a good thing to see. But uh, coming to the uh, explaining why I started uh, working on Kubernetes is because I am also one of the maintainers of our uh, research cloud in uh, University of Torino, which uh, has been built directly are, uh, between the offices. So when you enter in the, in the department, you see the data center. And the aim is to make students aware that cloud uh, is not something that is uh, in the sky, but exists uh, concretely somewhere, basically. <laughs> All right, good stuff. That being said, folks, if you got questions, please feel free to put them in the YouTube chat. If not, you can definitely continue the conversation later on in Slack. Um, if you want to start sharing your screen, go for it. Thank you. I'll try again. So, and folks, get ready to see the coolest profile picture you've ever seen in your lives. Hope you're ready. Look at that. All right. So, when Jacobo <laughs> isn't doing postdoctoral work, doing research, he is modeling doing underground work as an actor. I am convinced he was an extra in Game <laughs> of Thrones or some kind of awesome TV series. I, I can't, we, we got to get a hold of the photographer. We got to start doing events in Italy. I want this photographer to make me look at least half as good as you. And I'd be very happy about that. Um, so anyway, that being said, I'll let you guys take it away. Go for it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, ju I just play a guitar in a metal band. So this is the explanation. So oh, today... <laughs> well, that, sorry, sorry, sorry. Now that you said that, no, no, that's going to take a totally different direction. What's the, what's the name of your band so we can take a look at it? Maybe you can put a link in the chat here in Zoom and I can share that. Yes, I will do it. Uh, its name is Godless Entropia. All right. Godless Entropy. I, my Italian yes. is just flying by leaps and bounds. That sounds good. And you do have a science background. So entropy is something you're probably well familiar with. Um, anyway, that's cool. So that's good. We always like to mix these things though. You know, we do hip hop, we do music, we do art. So getting, getting some metal in there is also good. Love me some good metal. Anyway, go for it. <laughs> Thank you. So today I will talk about uh, this uh, platform for uh, data analytics as a service, which we developed at uh, University of Torino and uh, in cooperation also with, uh, with Clastix for the multi-tenancy part. And in particular, this is called Dossier. And uh, we will arrive step-by-step uh, step to, to Dossier because Dossier is the, an ensemble of multiple things. But we will start from uh, a very simple, uh, a very simple, <coughs> sorry for the voice, a very simple th thanks to all companies and organizations that make this talk possible, which are uh, Clastics and University of Torino, the, that on Kubernetes community, which we already know what they are, plus two European projects, the PELT project and the, the ACROSS project, which uh, are the context in which this research has been uh, developed and will be maintained, basically. So why we need to offer data analytics as a service? Well, because uh, in the 99% of the cases, people doing data science are not the people that provide services. And uh, even worse, people that do data scientists do not understand uh, almost nothing of how to build up a cloud or a Kubernetes cluster and vice versa. People in the uh, complex, involved in the complex IT and distributed systems in the cloud uh, often do not know how to train uh, a transformer or stuff like that. So. This is necessary to 
be to, to, to let data scientists be able to focus on data science and not on building up their own environment. And in fact, the major cloud providers are all offering data analytics as a service solution uh, in their, in their uh, private clouds. So, but if you want to, to, to start your data analytics as a service platform, what do you have to, what do you have to do? What do you have to care about? Well, there are several aspects that we will analyze then in the context of Kubernetes, but let us introduce them in a general, in a general way. So if you have data and your data are sensitive, for example, medical data or bank accounts data, you want to be sure that data remain private and that they are protected both from uh, malicious users and in the same in some cases also from the provider itself. And this is done with two mechanisms. The first is uh, data encryption or secure transport of the data, like using HTTPS or secure protocols. And the other is multi-tenancy, so segregation of uh, accesses to resources, storage, memory, and everything that can be used to exploit uh, the system to access the data. But then you also have to ensure performances and scalability, which is uh, like at the other side of the world with respect of security. Because if you have to train a neural network, you want to train it fast. Because neural networks are huge models and they require a vast amount of computing power. And so you cannot train them, for example, without high-end GPUs, because otherwise it will take ages. Also, you, for the, for the, for the discussion I, I, I had before, you must provide user-friendly interfaces and faster prototyping tools to the main experts, because you cannot ask a data scientist to uh, install a Kubernetes where to run Kubeflow with TensorFlow, or you cannot ask him to go to an HPC center and compile uh, PyTorch on a Power9 processor from scratch, because it, they, it, this is not his job. And it will take ages to do that just to prototype a, a, a simple experiment. And finally, you have to ensure portability and reproducibility of data science experiments because the data science is in many cases uh, quite delicate because changes in the data pre-processing pipeline or in the hyperparameters of the model can have a huge impact on the final result. And so you want to avoid at all costs to add additional sources of variability in the experiment. So you want to run in a portable and reproducible environment so that if you validate your prototype and you bring it to production, you can expect more or less the same results. These are all crucial aspects when providing this kind of uh, platforms. And what, 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 sorry, one thing real quick though about that, just, can you go back to that slide? Yes. So, you know, the thing is I'm, you know, originally from the United States, but I've been living in Europe for the past, uh, well, 12 years, actually one year, one year in the UK pre-Brexit and then now 11 years in Spain. When we talk about privacy and protection, you know, it's a market, the cloud, you know, market is very much monopolized by the United States and China. 
Do you expect that there will be in the coming years a European-backed and possibly EU-backed um, public cloud? So, uh, in research, we are trying to do that, but it is very, it is very difficult because we are terribly late. We are terribly late with respect to uh, United States, and also we don't have at the moment uh, the, uh, companies with enough strength to push for uh, so large investments. If you think uh, now we are trying to produce our own uh, processor, our own CPU in the European Processor Initiative, while uh, USA, China, and uh, uh, other parts of the world are trying to build quantum machines. So we start very late, but uh, in, in, it is undoubted that uh, the push of GDPR and privacy preserving uh, norms are driving uh, many small companies to provide their own clouds. What I see is that we will have uh, probably in the future many small clouds uh, in Europe provided by either uh, scientific and uh, research infrastructures or small companies to run only those workloads that cannot be run on, uh, on US for, uh, for, for example, for uh, limitations like the Cloud Act or uh, stuff like that. But we will never uh, have a real competition at scale, basically. This is my view. Fair enough. No, makes sense. Anyway, just want to touch on that real quick, considering we're, we're all at in different parts of the world and different things that are going on. Anyway, continue. Thank you. Thank you for the question, because it's one of the, of the things we are debating uh, like daily in the research group. So thank you. Uh, so when you have to, to provide all these, these requirements to your, uh, to your uh, platform, why you should choose Kubernetes? Well, for portability and reproducibility, it is obviously a, a great choice because you run on Kubernetes, then you, you can put, put Kubernetes over any cloud provider and you are okay. And more or less Kubernetes is always the same with, with the exception of uh, data storage, but this is uh, a sad part of the story, but many aspects, it is quite uh, always the same. So it is portable and is reproducible. It is also widely used. So if you need a, a, a um, already developed framework, uh, PyTorch, TensorFlow, anything, uh, probably there, there is a, a Kubernetes Helm chart to deploy it or uh, an operator or, a, or at least a Docker container that can be used to run it on, on, on Kubernetes. It is reliable because it has been tested uh, worldwide with huge workloads. So the control plane, at least it should be reliable. And it is also extensible. So if something is missing, you can try uh, to define your abstractions. It is quite easy to define new abstractions in Kubernetes. It is difficult to, uh, to program the right abstractions, those that you need. But in principle, writing an abstraction in Kubernetes is quite, is quite easy to the custom resource definitions, for example, or the operator pattern. But so why we cannot stick with Kubernetes and we need something else also? Because Kubernetes alone is not multi-tenant. Uh, otherwise, Dario would never have opened his company. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But uh, 
Uh, it is true that Kubernetes alone, in Kubernetes alone, it is very difficult and uh, um, not centralized to provide multi-tenancy uh, in a cluster. It is not transparent because there are uh, many layers of software-defined networks and uh, also software-defined storage that can hinder performances, especially in HPC workloads. GPUs are not a problem. They are more or less always mounted as pass-through, but uh, network and, and storage are, are a problem when you scale. Uh, and also it is not user-friendly because if you pretend that a data scientist that uh, is uh, using his Python script starts uh, learning all the different Kubernetes APIs, names, and uh, how to concatenate them, it will insult you probably. So we agree that we can use Kubernetes, but we need something else, which is this else. Well, our solution is to use Jupyter Notebooks. Jupyter Notebooks are already widely used by data scientists because they basically give you fast prototyping, you, you write your program, you execute it interactively, see the result as soon as it is produced. Then you can execute cells in the order you want. You can go back, uh, insert a new variable, uh, review your uh, data pipeline, and you can also document what they are doing so that another data scientist can come and reproduce your experiment or help you in uh, boosting your results. But they cannot scale. Uh, Jupyter Notebooks native do not scale because the execution model is sequential. You execute one cell after the other from beginning to the end or in a different order, but always one active cell at a time. Communication protocol is based on zero MQ. So it requires bidirectional connection from the server, which is the uh, web interface, and the kernel, so which is the uh, program uh, that computes the process that computes the Python scripts inside the cell. And uh, normally they are on the same machine, but they can also live in different places. But for example, you cannot place the kernel on an HPC worker node, for example, because HPC worker node have no outbound internet connection. So if you place the kernel on a, a HPC worker node, it cannot communicate to the server. So connection is lost and the protocol doesn't work. And there, are, there is Jupyter Hub that supports multi-tenancy, but is a limited support because you have one user, one uh, server. So one user, one notebook, basically. Not uh, uh, groups of users with uh, given resources that can share notebooks. This is not support. So it's a weak multi-tenants. And so we extended these Jupyter notebooks with what? Well, first problem is that they do not scale. So we want them to scale, but not also to scale inside the Kubernetes cluster because we said Kubernetes alone is not enough. We want to span cells everywhere on one cell on an HPC to, to do a um, uh, neural network training, another cell on a quantum machine because we need the, uh, uh, quantum advantage for this, this particular simulation. Then we want to put another cell on an FPGA because we want to test energy efficiency. And then we want to uh, come back to the, to the cloud 
because we want to to, to see the, the 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 charts of our results and and comment them. And so this is what hybrid workflow have been written to to do. So what are hybrid workflows? Hybrid workflows are workflows, so steps and uh, dependencies between steps that can span multiple heterogeneous and independent computing infrastructures. What does this mean? It means that a single workflow, for example, with two steps, can run uh, one step on the cloud and one step on HPC. And uh, this also means that things are heterogeneous because cloud is very different from HPC. And also independent because if I run on the cloud, the cloud doesn't know the existence of my HPC facility and vice versa, HPC facility doesn't know the existence of my cloud. So probably they will not have a single shared data space in which I can put the data to read and write them from both locations. In the cross project, we are trying to uh, build these workflow models to uh, foster the convergence of HPC, big data and artificial intelligence on uh, clusters and cloud. And this is basically the formal model behind uh, this, uh, this approach. I will not, this is formalized. I will not annoy you with, with formal uh, Greek letters and stuff like that. Oh, but, please do. Come on, come on, do it. <laughs> no, I didn't put on the slides and I'm not in a good shape to do that. But <laughs> if I'm- <laughs> For another day. <laughs> yes, another day. <laughs> For sure, second part. But we are publishing now the, the formalization of this. Of this. Uh, so as soon as it will be published, I will maybe put the link on the on the Slack if you, someone wants to kill himself with, uh, with Greek letters. But basically, and from a high perspective, a hybrid workflow model is a workflow, so a graph, in which you have different steps that are interconnected with dependencies. And each step, can be mapped to a different location in charge of its execution. And locations are interconnected in a topology. So basically like this one, you have three steps. Steps communicate through data that are ports in this case. So step one produces three data. The first is received by step two, the other two are received by step three. And the step two is mapped on a quantum machine, step three, is mapped on an HPC cluster and S1 is mapped on three different cloud VMs with the gray one acting as the control plane of the whole execution. And locations, which are the lower part, are interconnected by communication channels because not all locations can communicate directly to all the others. For example, HPC cluster cannot exit, can only receive inbound connection, but cannot go outside because it has not outbound internet connection, as I said before. And quantum machine, the same, is used as a, with the accelerator uh, pattern. So you submit, you get the result, but you cannot move that. So what we want to do, take Jupyter notebooks, take uh, hybrid workflows, put them together. How? You take a notebook and treat it like a workflow in which each cell is a step. So S1, S2, S3 are cell one, cell two, and cell three of our notebook. And in the notebook metadata, specify all the rest. So you specify the dependencies between the steps, 
the locations in which you want to offload the execution of that cell and the, all the topology of the involved locations so that you can figure out how to transfer data from one location to the others. And the important thing is that uh, this notebook is uh, a way to put host language, which is Python code inside the cells and coordination language. So description of the dependencies, the execution strategy, the data movements in the same document, but keeping them well separated. And this is basically uh, the advantage of this, uh, of this uh, approach with respect to, for example, having two totally different files, the program and in another place, the, the workflow definition, because this can be, uh, how can I say, uh, can make you lose some pieces, but also you cannot have to modify, you don't have to modify the Python code to insert your uh, specification of the distributed uh, strategy. Like you do, for example, in parcel array, uh, Dask, that was mentioned uh, earlier today in the, in the previous talk. Basically, it is true that you only put an annotation on the Python, so it's not a huge modification, but still you stick with a given library. While when you rely on metadata, which are declarative, any implementation of the Jupyter engine that can interpret that metadata can be used and uh, multiple implementation can be switched one to the other, and you can also extend an implementation with your uh, engine if you feel that something is, uh, is missing without changing neither the code nor the metadata. This is, in my opinion, the, the good part of the approach, but I uh, wrote it, so I'm not, uh, um, how can I say? <coughs> I, am, I am on my part, basically. So. I will accept criticism from uh, people that listen very carefully because they are very important to, to, to make it better, basically. So this is basically the architecture. As you can see, there is the user that interacts with the, the, the notebook, so the, the classical file with the cell plus the metadata, which specify the workflow. Then, we augmented the front end of the Jupyter server to pass the metadata to the kernel. And in the kernel, we interpret the metadata, automatically resolve dependencies between cells. So if a cell reference a variable that is declared in the previous cell, it is automatically marked as an input dependency. And we use a stream flow, which is a workflow management system to offload the computation to remote locations, Kubernetes, HPC, SSH-based uh, PMs, Docker, uh, all, all these things. Cloud Pickle is used to, to serialize and deserialize. Serialization and deserialization is the crucial part of this uh, approach because you basically have to remotely execute a piece of code. So you have to serialize and deserialize anything in both directions. Otherwise, nothing can work. 
The drawback is that this is only uh, made for Python at the moment, so it's not uh, code agnostic. Metadata can be the same for any language, but we implemented the kernel only for Python to, to have a proof of concept, but same metadata can be used also for other languages. Now, I prepared these slides that I would like to substitute with a demo. So it is a risky time. Can I try to, to demonstrate? Yes, you can, but I want to know before we start, as the lead guitarist, or what, what instrument do you play? I play a drop uh, one tone seven string guitar. So very, it's very like good. a bass. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't expect anything less. Um, but that being said, you know, you're about to do a demo and you're in a band called Godless Entropia. Um, yes. Which, exactly. which, demo, which demo gods do you pray to? <laughs> let's, let's hope. We the Greek alphabet. We can use the Greek gods too. That's okay. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. go, take it away, man. Go for it. Thank you. So now I'm accessing, but this I will explain you later. Basically, I will come back on these on these screens. So now, basically, I'm just deploying a, a, a Jupyter notebook as uh, all the others. This is spawning directly on the same uh, on the same Kubernetes cluster of the Jupyter Hub extender. Now you see dossier, but imagine this as a Jupyter Hub, common Jupyter Hub. Now I want to, to see how these workflows can be used. So this is basically a simple, a very simple, uh, a very simple um, notebook in which we have three cells. First cell, declares an array of five variables and uh, measure performances. The second cell iterates over all the variables in the var and uh, writes a line and then sleeps for five seconds. And then we measure the total time. So if we execute this from the beginning to the end, we should take five times five, so 25 seconds. But I just defined here a scatter pattern, which basically tells the engine to take the variable var, which is a list, and create an instance of the cell for each element of the list, and then process them concurrently. If the, we have enough uh, cores in parallel. So the theoretical time is five seconds because we process all of them in parallel. Also note that all the input dependencies here, print function, time, string here, and also var have been automatically inferred by the engine. So now I run all, cell run all, and if it works, we should see a total time for completion of, you see, 5.85, which is not five, but it is, is much lower than 25. So this is a first way of augmenting the uh, notebooks with parallel patterns. Not that I did not uh, change any 
line of code here. Another example, very short. This one, in this, in this time we have uh, two variables, A and B, and one cell that processes only A and one cell that processes only B. So we can process A and B in parallel because this cell does not depend on this other cell. And this is basically what our workflow does. If we execute it from the beginning to the end, we should take at least 10 seconds. If we run it with run workflow, which extracts the workflow structure and organize the concurrent execution, we only take six seconds, which is less than 10. Now, these are really silly examples, but this can be brought at scale. And for example, with the first uh, thing, with the scatter thing, we trained 256 uh, neural networks in parallel remotely on a HPC facility with the uh, notebook running directly on my laptop. And with the second feature, the workflow construction, we run a simulation on the DaVinci HPC facility, putting the notebook on the login node. And we basically took as the same time as a direct execution through PBS, which is the workload manager of that HPC facility, but using an interactive uh, interface with Jupyter and without changing any line of code. So now come to the interesting part, come to the data. We have Jupyter workflows, but where is data privacy here? So it is a problem because data volumes in Kubernetes can only be segregated at a namespace level because persistent volumes are a cluster resource. And the only way you can avoid another user to attach to a persistent volume is to put it uh, busy on your namespace. So you take the volume. But if you use one data set, one namespace, then, which is the only way for uh, using multi-tenancy at the data level, then this means that with uh, uh, normal Kubernetes, you have to basically put all the tenant segregation at the namespace level. So you have to put accountability on the namespace level. You have to put uh, resource allocation on the namespace level, network policy, uh, and all the things configured per namespace. But with Jupyter Notebooks, one namespace with Jupyter Hub, one namespace means one user. So basically, you should configure one tenant per each user. Why? Because you in Kubernetes cannot separate the, and you have only two levels, the entire cluster or the single namespace. And we, for this uh, multi-tenant Jupyter workflow as a service, needed something in between, something that could, could separate the accountability from the access control. And we did it with Capsule that now Dario will explain much better than me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot for the introduction, Jacopo. I'm really happy to be here. And you described very well the problem because as you told us, 
uh, with Kubernetes, we just got two levels. So it means that we have to enhance the Kubernetes capabilities with the multi-tenancy. So I would like to start introducing the term of tenant because tenant is just an abstraction. It's just a collection of namespace. And why we will need multi-tenant environments in Kubernetes? Well, I would say that because uh, the flat hierarchy of namespaces in Kubernetes are not enough, especially in this case. So sometimes you need to take your applications, take your services to the next level and ask the multi-tenancy. How we solved this problem, this dilemma in the past, and the solution was to spawn in multiple clusters. And that could be a problem, a cumbersome problem in the long term, because it means that you have to manage multiple clusters and it means that you have to rotate the certificates, you have to take care of the alerts or the errors, uh, the backup, the restore, and so on and so forth. So a lot of issues. Instead, if you call if you could use a single cluster using the multi-tenant paradigm, you are saving a lot, a lot of effort from the operational burden. So what is Capsule? Essentially, it's an Apache 2 uh, licensed operator. An operator in Kubernetes is a binary that is watching the API server and performing some actions on behalf of the human operator. And it's pretty simple to use because what you have to do, and Jacopo, you can confirm that, and I'm pretty also happy to hear your feedback about that, but you just need to install using Helm or using single YAML manifest or using also the uh, charmed uh, Juju operator that we, de we developed for the uh, canonical distribution. And what's really cool regarding Capsule is that it's keeping the same user experience uh, of dealing with Kubernetes. I mean, uh, you know, there are so many platforms out there that are providing uh, multi-user management of a Kubernetes cluster. And sometimes you have to install a third-party uh, plugin to your kubectl, or you have to use a third-party uh, binary uh, instead of kubectl. So it's really cumbersome. And developers, well, that they don't want to study a new application. They just want to stick to the official documentation of Kubernetes and having the same experience. And that's the reason why we try to design capsule uh, sticking to this simple solution. So it must be simple to use and it must follow all the information and all the experience that an end user could expect using Kubernetes. So if you can uh, uh, pass to the next slide, Jacopo, I think that we have also to try to understand how does it work multi-tenancy because multi-tenancy means that we are going to have multiple users using the Kubernetes cluster. And it means that how can we identify a user? So it means that to use Capsule, it means that you have a Kubernetes cluster that is allowing to be is allowed to be used by multiple users. So these users are identified using an identity provider. And in the uh, brief demo that you presented, Jacopo, you are using Keycock. So Keycock, it's an OEIDC uh, provider for Kubernetes. And it means that you're connecting somewhere and you're getting your users, your credentials. And then the Kubernetes API server is saying, okay, you're Jacopo, you're Dario, you're Bart, so you can do this stuff. All the authorization part uh, is managed in Kubernetes. So in the end, we just need to get a user and from this user, all the user groups. So the first step is to identify a user and then we are playing with the Kubernetes primitives, the Kubernetes controllers, like the dynamic admission controllers. And these are the validating and mutating webhooks and along also with the resource owner reference. What is a resource owner reference? So the pretty, uh, that simple example is the pod 
that is belonging to a replica set that is belonging to a deployment. So it means that essentially there is a chain of ownership between the projects, well, between the primitives, between the objects. So it means that uh, with the tenant structure, we're saying, okay, we got a set of namespaces owned by a tenant owner. So we are able to group them into this solution that is a Kubernetes cluster slice, I would say. I don't want to use the term virtual Kubernetes cluster because uh, that wouldn't be fair. So it's a slice of your Kubernetes cluster where a set of rules are applied. So to the next slide, we can try also to understand why we should use a single cluster for multi-tenants instead of using multiple clusters. So um, I really love this representation because as you can see here, um, besides the joke, because I, I'm, <laughs> I do a lot of jokes, sorry for that, I'm Italian and that's the reason. Anyway, uh, if you have a lot of clusters, uh, pretty sure that uh, you're going to, um, how to say that, you are going to uh, optimize the cost because in the end you can have, can have more small clusters and there is a downside because multiple clusters mean means that you have to perform multiple operations. But at the same time, also having a huge cluster in that case could be cumbersome because it means that you're ending up with a single point of failure. So I'm not saying that capsule is the silver bullet to solve all your problems. It really depends, but obviously it depends on what it depends. So it depends also on your organization, on your data. So we got customers and we got end users that are using Capsule spread across multiple regions. So they're using the GitOps approach in order to say, okay, we are reconciling all the operations, but we don't have a single point of failure, but they are taking the full advantage of the multi-tenancy. So in the next slide, we can also try to understand how, uh, how are we identifying a user? So we all know that what we have to do is to issue kubectl get namespaces, kubectl version, or whatever the command you would like to issue. But uh, under the hoods, behind the hoods, behind the curtains, uh, there are so many involving uh, components that sometimes uh, we are getting lost about that. So keep in mind that uh, when we are using a multi-tenant cluster, so with the authentication, so the authentication of a user, uh, there is the client that is requesting to the identity provider a token. So uh, I'm performing the login on the web page or using my authentication mechanism, and I'm getting this token. And then I'm using this token to authenticate against the API server, the Quantas one, that is configured to get a validation, so a verification of the token. And this is the result of the request payload. So uh, it's not properly request payload because this is the JSON web token that we are getting from Kubernetes. Well, that we are using against the Kubernetes. So with that said, we are able to identify a user and why this is important, because in the end, when you're dealing with multi-tenant, you're saying, I got multiple actors, I got Alice, I got Jacobo, I got Dario, and each of them is belonging to a specific tenant. So it means that we have to identify them. And luckily, uh, Kubernetes has been made uh, with this feature from the beginning, well, not from the beginning, but it has been introduced um, uh, in the long term. But we are here, so we got it, so we are pretty happy. And in the next slide, instead, we are going to understand how it works. Because keep in mind that Capsule is intercepting all the requests by a user creating a namespace and performing some actions. So how are we doing that? Uh, it means that we are rebuilding um, Kubernetes API server? No, absolutely not. Uh, Kubernetes is really smart because 
uh, it allows to mangle the requests that are sent to the API server. And this mangling is made of uh, by webhooks, and it means that we are installing in the Kubernetes cluster two, well, not two, but more than two, but two kinds of webhooks, the validating and the mutating. So the validating essentially is a sort of saying, okay, I'm checking this request. I can do this action. This user can do that, yes or no. So I can deny or approve the request. And instead with the mutating, we are able to say, I'm getting this request. I'm adding my own business logic, like adding the owner reference to the namespace. And in that case, adding the owner reference, it means that the namespace is going to be attached to the tenant. So if we try to understand how Capture works, let's imagine I'm Jacopo, I'm issuing kubectl create namespace. Since Jacopo is part of the user group that is belonging to Capture, there is a lookup in the tenant list. Keep in mind that tenants is a custom resource definition at cluster scope. So I'm just checking for the user and for the group in the list. And retrieving the tenant, I'm adding the owner reference to the namespace, referencing the tenant and the Jacopo tenant. So far, so good, essentially. And please, next slide, Jacopo. Um, why using Capsule? Because I'd say that Capsule is not a product. It's an operator, yeah, but I will consider it as a sort of framework because so far, Capsule was born during the pandemic, during the 2020. Um, we were in our houses. Uh, I didn't know what to do, so I started developing this stuff along with Adriano, uh, my business partner here in this adventure of the open source. And you know what? Um, we discovered that a lot of people was using that for several reasons. Uh, we are really happy to be here with Jacopo because essentially they're using Capsule to build, a, I would say that, a machine learning platform, a deep learning platform based on Kubernetes and decreasing all the toil of managing a fleet of Kubernetes clusters and enhancing their product. Although it's not a product, it's a platform, but you're getting the point, okay? So it means that with Capsule, you can, uh, first of all, enhance the multi-tenancy of Kubernetes in a streamlined, streamlined way. It means that uh, you don't have to use a specific distribution. It's everything uh, transparent to the Kubernetes API. So we are, we are not introducing any uh, customer resource definition for the tenant owner's perspective, just for the cluster administrator, obviously. And it means that if you would like to get rid of Capsule, you can do that. So it means that there are no vendor lock-ins. So you can use Capsule, you can take full advantage of it. And if you would like to uninstall it because you are tired of that, although it's pretty unfair because it's working well, I'd say, I don't know, <laughs> Jacob, please provide the feedback. Anyway, you can do that. So it's pretty transparent. Uh, it's not invasive, I'd say. It's not opinionated, so it means that the multi-tenancy solution that you can put in place is totally shaped uh, around your business. In this case, Jacopo mentioned that you have to perform the network segregation between the tenants, and you can do that because we are supporting also the propagation of network policies. Or let's say I would like to limit also the resources used across the tenants. With Capture, you can do that, and that's really cool because let's imagine, you know, I got my pods, that are running in any namespace, and I would like to say, I cannot consume more than, I don't know, 10 GPUs, 100 GPUs, something like that. Um, you can set this limit just at the namespace level, and you cannot do that at the tenant level. And keep in mind that the tenant level is a collection of namespaces. So instead with Capsule, since we are using the tenant 
uh, abstraction, you can set this limit to be considered across all the namespaces of the of tenant. So it looks like a limit of a sort of virtual cluster, but in the end you're using just a single cluster and you're happy about that. And also, uh, what else? Ah, obviously it's everything based on YAML. So everybody loves YAML, I would say, I don't know. Uh, sometimes I'm really tired of that, but uh, we have to deal with that. So it means that you can define the tenant abstraction using the YAML language. Uh, you can use kubectl to get it explained, and it's pretty, I would say not pretty, but it's absolutely GitOps ready. Means that you can get your multi-tenant, well, your tenants declared in a Git repository, and these are going to be applied on every cluster where it is configured. So it means that there is a constant reconciliation, a reconciliation of all the rules that are going to be applied in the namespaces of the tenants, plus also the tenants deployed across uh, all the clusters that you have configured. So any, I would say that this is in a nutshell uh, what this capsule is doing. And I think that we can talk also about what is dossier. So next slide. Yes, thank you. Uh, another, another, if I can add another good point of, of Capsule is that it works when you deploy it, which is not a typical thing of all the projects around the, the globe. And the other thing is that when you want it to do something, it does exactly that. And uh, this is another feature that very important. By the way, thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm really happy to way, hear that. <laughs> it's the truth. By the way, to su summing up other things. So what is dossier? The say is the big, uh, bigger fusion of all we discussed uh, up to now. So it is a multi-tenant distributed Jupyter as workflow as a service platform. What does it mean? It means that we use tenants to make basically accountability. I sell you, I don't sell you a uh, three. Um, Notebooks. I sell you uh, 16 cores, uh, three GPUs. Uh, three GPUs is very bad. Four GPUs. And you can bring your data, spawn your notebooks, do your stuff, uh, as long as in your tenant, you do not uh, go over your limit. So you can be two people, 20 people, 100 people, but you paid that amount of resources. You can use only that amount of resources contemporarily. No more than that. And this separates accountability, which is done at the tenant level, from segregation, which is done at the namespace level. Plus, we can move outside the Kubernetes cluster with the Jupyter workflows. And since we have the, the topology of locations, we can monitor the information flow which for sensitive data is important. So I know statically when I see the workflow where my data will be moved. And so I can also put constraints on that to avoid the data are moved in a particular location that I don't want. And so I can disable statically the execution of the workflow. Then we use Keyclock to associate users to tenants. So when you authenticate, you can be part of one or more tenants. So another thing, you as a user can have multiple 
notebooks running in different tenants if you are part of multiple tenants. And the last thing that remains is what if I cannot bring my data on the Kubernetes cluster because GDPR, I cannot, uh, my doctor doesn't want. So how can I do my computation in that case? Simply, I move the notebook from Kubernetes where the data reside. And this is the last thing I want to show you if uh, I can succeed to do, do two demos. So this is my user, my uh, first screen. I see two tenants because my user is part of two tenants. I can select one of them. I select the first one. Then I can select two spawners, the dossier spawner, which is the normal spawner I selected before. So spawn my notebook inside my Kubernetes cluster or per tenant configured external spawners that can be uh, configured by system administrator to provide users of a certain tenant access to external resources or also by users with the privilege to create uh, spawner resources that can bring their own computing resources. And then if I select this one as my uh, spawner, then this will spawn a notebook from my Kubernetes cluster to a remote VM on the cloud with a GPU, as you can see. And uh, I wrote this uh, script in Python that basically search for uh, environment variables that start with cube, only to demonstrate that I'm not on Kubernetes. I didn't know how to demonstrate that I'm not running on Kubernetes. I think this is, is a way. When you run on Kubernetes pods, you have always variables like cube, uh, host name, cube, not port, cube. Eh? Here, I don't tell. So I'm not on Kubernetes. I'm in another place. But I started on Kubernetes. So here, I'm on Kubernetes. Here, I'm on another place. And I just pressed a button. OK, then. Stop with the demos. Last thing is skip this slide. We used all this stuff in a European project called Deep Health to build, as Dario said before, a Kubernetes-based deep learning training and inference platform to give practitioners uh, the deep learning and, and deep inference as a service on uh, medical data. And basically, we provided them with two different access paths. This figure is very complicated, but I will resume it very quickly. Advanced user access directly to kubectl, and they can deploy pods and run their workflows as they want, always authenticating with the T-clock. So this was always segmented by the tenants. But data scientists or practitioners or uh, practitioners with, with knowledge in Python that also do some machine learning stuff can access to dossier to their tenant where they spawn a Jupyter notebook and through Jupyter notebook spawn a deep learning training either directly on a, the cloud or on our Slurm managed HPC portion of the computing resources, which are bare metal with InfiniBand and with high-end uh, V100 and recently A100 GPUs using these tools. So uh, this was only to 
to tell you that all the things we have told you today have been used in a three years European project. So uh, at least in that case, were useful, basically. Oh, don't be so modest. I'm sure that's a nice way of putting it. But I think it's really, really good to see that these things are being used directly in action. Sometimes we hear about technologies like, yeah, it sounds great, but can we actually see it being applied? And this making it into an academic environment where there are lots of different options, I think is a very, very promising sign. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we, we wanted to basically, we, I'm not saying that from tomorrow, you stop doing data science how you, how you did since yesterday and start to do it like this. We simply wanted to explore like a different way to, to make different resources, heterogeneous resources, cooperate through a, 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 the same interface and to give access to, to people that are not IT experts to all this heterogeneous world. Uh, and this was the, basically the solution that came out. So with this, I can, uh, ah, oh, to, to, to small data, uh, we run uh, on a platform with 16 GPUs and 192 cores with five different tenants and eight data sets. So, so some tenants had uh, multiple data sets. And also we hosted the winter school with over five, uh, 50 attendees, always using this, uh, this segregation stuff so that attendees of the winter school had their own resources. They could not access the data and the computing resources of the production part. Uh, and they could experiment through dossier and stuff like that. So also to, to teach people, because in this project, they also developed the European um, deep learning and computer vision libraries. So this was a way to, to let the students experiment with those libraries. Uh, these are useful links, but you can see them. And I can conclude here. Thank, thank you very much for let us participate in that uh, in that uh, community. Of course, um, absolute pleasure. And like I said, we're kind of new at this when it comes to bringing in these kind of use cases, seeing how these technologies are being leveraged on Kubernetes. Excellent demo, excellent explanations, getting the context, seeing where we've kind of come from, how this is being onboarded into the Kubernetes world, the advantages that are being provided, but also to see this being applied in this project. Um, I really have to ask both of you that I would love to see a CFP about this for DOK Day and KubeCon. Um, so I will be expecting to hear from you. In terms of other stuff, Dario, I believe you have a meetup today. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so, so that's in, in how many how many minutes are we talking at this point? Uh, it started 40 minutes ago. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no, just joking. You know, you know, yeah, it's a busy day, but people is waiting because, you know, there is the pizza, the beer. We're in Italy, so we're eating pizza all the time. So okay, and that's the thing. We, we, you know, we have pizza and beer in other meetups, but I can only imagine the quality of pizza and beer in Italy. In, yeah. Uh, I hope without pineapple. Oh yeah, no. Oh, oh okay. Nice. No pineapple, right? This this could because be we have to leave right now if you are putting pineapple. On pizza. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we heard it. You heard it here first, folks. Godless entropia does not respect pineapple on pizza. That is sacrilege. That is something not to be done. I will expect Jacobo to be including a song in his next album specifically about that topic. Uh, but for real, this was a great conversation, and I was really glad that Jacobo was able to join us earlier too in the Twitter space with Patrick getting the great minds together to be thinking about the next steps for data on Kubernetes with these ML AI workloads, 
We'll be having Patrick's talk next week in San Francisco, and I'm definitely going to be incorporating some of the things we learned today in the Q&A when we're doing that. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate having a chance to hear from both of you. Lots of exciting stuff going on. And like I said, I really hope we can get in a CFP from you for KubeCon. All right. We're good. Thanks so much, Bart. Absolutely. My pleasure. Yakuba, Absolutely. Take, thank take, you. Take care. Take care. Keep taking amazing pictures. Keep making amazing music. And we'll see you guys soon. All right.